All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for the Spirit's help. Father, would you send down your Spirit now, who we've just talked about, that he might illumine Christ to us and that you might inform us of the truth himself, and that Christ might be glorified. Open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear wondrous things from your word. Amen. Well, we've been studying Paul's letter to this church plant in Thessalonica for quite a few weeks now, and if you've been following along, you might be thinking when we get to this part, what is, why is this here? This is out of left field. We're all of a sudden talking about the return of Jesus. But before, we've been talking about faith and, and you know, sexual purity and work ethics. What does this have to do with, with that? But I want to show you that the return of Jesus is actually what Paul's been circling around this whole time. It's the thing he's been talking about. Everything that Paul said about all of those topics, holiness and work, etc., it all has to do with this. So if you were to go through, and it might be a good exercise, you go through your Bible with a pencil and circle every verse in 1 Thessalonians where Paul talks explicitly about the return of Jesus. You'd be circling chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 4, 14 through 18, chapter 5, verse 2, and chapter 5, 23. The, every chapter in this book is soaked in the theme of the return of Jesus. No matter what he's talking about, this is what he's coming back to, the second coming of Jesus. But he's not just sprinkling it like, you know, seasoning on eggs throughout here and there because it's something that's on his mind. He's, he seems to have designed this letter specifically to point to Jesus's second coming. It's on purpose. It's a design. So in chapters one through three, Right? We're in chapter 4, so in the last three chapters, here's basically what Paul's saying. Paul says, I was with you in person. I was right there with you, and I preached the gospel to you, and you were transformed by the gospel. And while I was with you in person, I worked among you, got my hands in the dirt, and I loved sacrificially for you. But then I had to leave you, and it broke my heart. I didn't want to go, but I had to go. And now I long to see you face to face. And I've sent someone to encourage you while I'm gone. 
but I'm coming again soon. That's what Paul says about himself and the church in Thessalonica in chapters 1 to 3. Do you hear Jesus in that? The design of the letter is meant to point us to Jesus, who was among us, who loved sacrificially, who preached the gospel to us, who got his hands dirty and worked on our behalf, who left, who sent an encourager, and who says, I want to see you face to face again. I'm coming. I'm coming soon. It's been about Jesus all along, guys. It's all about the second coming. But if, if you heard this passage that we just read, and you feel a little bit confused about the sort of people who are asleep in Christ and the dead in Christ and who comes first and who comes second, don't, don't be alarmed. It's natural to be a little bit muddied on that because it's like listening to one side of a phone call, right? If, if you walk in the room and your friend's on the phone, you don't know what the other person is saying. Well, we hear Paul's side of the conversation, but not theirs. They seem to have been asking big questions about the resurrection and about the second coming of Christ, and they seem to have been confused. And you're not asking the same questions that they were asking. Otherwise, this would make perfect sense to you. We're asking different questions, but that's okay. Because what Paul does is, is he, he addresses their specific time-constrained circumstances and questions with timeless truth. And that same timeless truth can do for you and me today what it did for them then, which is in all the places where we fear and despair, the truth of Jesus Christ can give us hope. That's what Paul was after here, hope. You see it in verse 13. So this is where we're going today. I'll give you the, the roadmap of the sermon, so to speak, in three points. We're going to rescue some words that have been kind of muddied and confused in our modern moment. And then we're going to apply it with more specificity than I usually dare. <laughs> so three points. Number one, reclaiming hope. Number two, reclaiming rapture. And then number three is reassuring one another. So number one, reclaiming hope. That's the word we're going to take back for Jesus. Now, I read a story this week, um, Cards on the Table, literally a website about sermon illustrations. Um, not this clever or good. Um, but I read a story about a boy who'd been really badly burned, and he's in the hospital, slowly, slowly recovering. And the school district that this boy went to school in had this really cool program where they, they would bring in tutors and send them to these children in the hospital to help them keep up with their studies as they recover. Great program. So one day, this young lady comes to tutor the boy who'd been burned, and she didn't know how bad his injuries were. She comes in the room to teach him about nouns and adverbs and sees this, um, this boy. He's not looking good. And she begins to think, what I have to say is pretty inconsequential for him right now. He's in such a bad state, he doesn't care about nouns and adverbs. But she did the work anyway and left feeling kind of awkward. And what's remarkable is that later, the nurse called her up, the boy's nurse, and said, what did you say to him? And she's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> did I step on toes? She said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's like after you met with him, he decided to live. He's recovering. Man, the, 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 the tutor was baffled. Nouns and adverbs, it's not life-changing. Later, they asked the boy himself, and he said, well, it occurred to me, they, they don't teach a dying boy about nouns and adverbs. He got hope. Real hope. Real 
Hope is powerful. It actually does something in us and in the world. And real biblical hope, based on the certainties we have in Christ, is really, really powerful. So let's reclaim that word hope. Let's take it away from meaning wishing. Hope and wishing are not the same for the Christian. Here's what biblical hope is. It's a future-oriented certainty on a past truth. Something was true then, so something's certain to happen in the future. That's what hope is, which means that hope for us is logical, rational, reasonable, intelligent, cognitive. Don't be afraid of your mind with your Christian faith. We're meant to engage it and put Rest our brains down on the truth, and then our hearts will kick in. We can't love what we don't know. That's why we see in verse 13 that real biblical hope starts with information. So look at verse 13 with me again. Uh, Again, I don't know how many of you are Bible circlers. I'm constantly marking up my Bibles and getting new ones. Um, (laughs) If you're like me... You can circle the word uninformed in verse 13 and the word no hope. And you might want to draw a little line between no hope and uninformed because they're deeply connected. You cannot hope what you don't know about. So when Paul encounters despair, grief with no hope in the church, he says, I'm going to start by giving you new information or by clarifying information for you. And when the truth like that is brought to light, when that kind of real truth and information is, you know, enlightened for us, we can rest our hopes on it. And then that hope that kicks in is like that little boy's hope. Go, oh, okay. They wouldn't teach me about nouns and adverbs if I didn't have a future. So the question is then, what is the information that Paul points them to, right? I don't want you to be uninformed. In other words, I'm about to inform you. What does he inform them of? Verse 14. For since we believe, that's, this is what follows the believe is the content of the information. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So our Christian hope for the future is not a house built on the sand of wishful thinking. It's built on a rock. And our Anglican friends in our midst will know what that rock is, the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the mystery of faith. That is the rock of our hope. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the hope that can powerfully shape and change our lives. But for that to happen, you have to see yourself in that, don't you? Where are you? That's about Jesus. Where are you in that confession? Well, Paul locates us in there, and it's, he does it with, in verse 16 with his favorite phrase, and he alludes to it all over this book. Uh, in verse 16, we see the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. If you're a Christian, then literally you are spiritually located in Christ. Uh, You're in 37207 zip code right now. But if you believe, if you trust Jesus, then something more fundamental is true about you, and that is you are located in Christ. 
That is powerful information, is it not? Think about the implications. Christ has died. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. Christ is risen. You have been raised with Christ. Christ will come again. And so we will always be with the Lord. You're in Christ. Where he goes, you go. (laughs) Period. You're his body. Now, in the first century, uh, for the Jewish believers, the the God-fearing Jews, the resurrection of Jesus posed a massive problem. And if you want to learn and think more about that, N.T. Wright is a great conversation partner. Um, Surprised by hope is a wonderful place to start. Uh, it, It posed a great problem because after the Old Testament had kind of been compiled and written, the Jews came to believe in the resurrection. At the end of history, they said history is going to go on and on, and one day everything's going to stop at the end, and all God's saints will be raised again. Okay? They're so close. But then Jesus came in the middle of history, and their Messiah died, blew their minds, and then he rose from the dead alone. They didn't have a category for that. They saw all the saints rising together at the end, and here's one saint rising in the middle alone. What do you do with that? Well, Paul addresses that very specifically, and he uses the concept in the Old Testament of a harvest to do that. So think about this. Um, If you have an apple tree, this year you'll get one harvest, not 20 harvests from the apple tree. You get one, but in that harvest, you'll get first fruits, right? It's, It's the first beautiful apple that comes on your tree. And it's not a separate harvest. It's not like the first one is one harvest and then there's another harvest. The first fruits are the guarantee that there's more to come. The tree is healthy. Fruit is coming. The harvest will be plentiful. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see what I'm getting at? There's one harvest. One crop will be raised from the dead, and it will be all who are in Christ. And we can know that because Jesus is the first fruits. If he's alive, you'll come back from the dead with a new glorified body like him and live forever. If you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, then the most certain thing in the universe for you is that you won't have an end and you'll be with him forever because we're one harvest. So are you afraid of dying? Most people are. This culture, my goodness. Fear of death drives most of what we do on some level. So are you afraid? Get in Christ. Get in. Get inside Christ. Trust him to do what you can't do Trust him to give you his righteousness, to forgive your sins. That's it. You're in. He's got you. No fear of death can stand up to a hope like that. Fear is crippling. So if you really want to live with freedom, with joy, with power, then you've got to know you're already dead. And you've been raised with him. 
it's as good as done. In Romans 8, Paul lists out things that are true of Christians. And one of them is that you have been glorified. Have I? Really? No, not yet. But it's as good as done. That's how certain your future is. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, and if you have, right, it's where it, the answer is, is in the question. It's like, yes, okay, I have been raised with Christ. Well then, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For, here's the reason that holds up his argument, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He goes on, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's not wishful thinking. That's hope. Based on the truth. So worldly hope, worldly hope basically says, I'm going to live however I want and hope things turn out for the best. That's what worldly hope does. It's what a lot of our hopes are like. But real biblical hope says, I know how the story ends. So I'm going to live in light of that. So all the application points that Paul has made in this letter, they snap into focus when we look at the real hope of Jesus' second coming. That information that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, it gives us joy in our grief. It gives meaning to our work, power to our love. And it compels us towards the kind of holiness that we're going to be enjoying for all of eternity. Why does it do that? Because now we know. The one we love is coming back. We're not on our own. This life is not all there is. So I don't have to grab and take and get some for myself, grab a handful of comfort and a fistful of peace. Don't have to do that. Your life is a person who is seated at the right hand of God and is going to come back and put everything to rights. Real hope in Jesus is powerful. It changes everything. So that's reclaiming hope. Let's take that one back. Number two, the point you've all been waiting for. <laughs> reclaiming rapture. Oh, man. If, okay, if 25-year-old me we're sitting on a psychiatrist's couch playing a word association game. It might go like this. Sweet, ice cream. Right? Um, rock, zeppelin. Rapture, fear. Terror, panic. I grew up in the left behind era. You guys, I mean, those of you who did know exactly what I'm talking about. So when we get to a verse like this, especially verse 17, I feel, if I may say it, kind of triggered. I have had decades of fear around the rapture. Now, if you're new to the church world at all, then I need to explain the word rapture to you because it's not in the text. Um, it's taken from a word and a concept in the text. That's okay. We do that all the time. The word Trinity is not in the Bible either. It's not a bad word. I don't want to get rid of the word. I want to reclaim the word. If the word is a bag that we fill with meaning from culture, I want to empty the bag out and fill it from scripture. Can we do that? So the word rapture comes from verse 17, in which most of your English Bibles, there has a phrase, caught up, caught up with Jesus to meet him in the air. It's the word for seized or suddenly grabbed. 
caught up. You catch up a child into your arms when you get home, right? Some Christians in the last hundred years have taken that truth from the Bible, and they have said that Jesus is going to sneak back, and, and I'm not trying to be cheeky or mock anything, but they say that Jesus is going to sneak back, secretly take all the Christians and take them back to heaven, to take them out of this world to go somewhere better. Uh, so, you know, you get the Left Behind movies where there's a plane that crashes because the pilot was a Christian and the rapture happens and now there's a little pile of clothes in the cockpit. That's not what 1 Thessalonians teaches. Can we be clear on that? From the text. And if you were taught uh, a scary or harmful uh, or incorrect theology of the second coming of Christ, I'm sorry, you're in good company. Most of us have. So let's go back to the Bible and see what it says. One of the temptations we have, as a side note, is to say way more than the Bible says on a topic. I just don't want to do that. So let's go back. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again very carefully. Starting in 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, raptured together with them in the clouds. Why? To meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, I want to focus in this point on two key words here. The first is the word meet in verse 17. We're going to think about what it means to meet the Lord in the air. And the second is the word trumpet in verse 16. I know that's backwards. That's just how my brain works. I'm sorry. So first, let's dive into the word meet, to meet the Lord in the air. Now, this word is anaptasin, if you care. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. It's used 26 other times in the Greek version of the Old Testament. But let's talk about these two times briefly. So when you get to a word, it's really helpful to use a concordance or whatever tools you have and look up where else that word occurs in the Bible and let the Bible inform how the Bible uses words. Does that make sense? So we let we let go of our preconceived definitions of words, and we let the Bible teach us what they mean. So Matthew 25, 6, Jesus is telling a parable about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus is talking about the return of Christ, he's often talking about a wedding. And that's what he's, he's saying here. There's going to be a wedding feast. And these bridesmaids are waiting for the groom because you can't start the party until the groom gets here. And they're waiting and they're waiting. They waited long into the night. And then verse 6, this is what he says. This is Jesus speaking. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Meet. Adaptation. Same word. Come out to meet the bridegroom. So the bridegroom is journeying from his home to the feast. Right? You've got where he's coming from, where he's going to. And in between those places, the bridesmaids come out to meet with him. Why? To usher him escort him, celebrate with him to the feast, to the destination. Does that make sense? Second instance, Acts 28, 15. Paul's on his way to Rome. Some friends are really eagerly waiting for him. You see this theme begin to grow of we're waiting. We're eager. We're waiting. We want to go meet him. When his friends hear that Paul is approaching the city, they leave the city they go out to meet Paul on his way, and they joyfully escort him into town. 
the word is used 26 times in the Old Testament, like I mentioned as well, and much in the same way. The word is also used in a lot of secular writings from the first century, and so we've got a whole bunch of historical linguistic context to make sure we're getting this right. And here's how the word was used. Let's say a king leaves from his city to go out to war, and he's victorious, and he conquers. On his way back, the watchmen in the city would say, the king is coming back, and everyone would run out from the city, meet the king, and joyfully escort him back into the city. Welcome home. That's the word, meet. The good news of Jesus Christ for this world is not that he's coming to rescue you out of this world. It's that he's coming back to this world. <laughs> That's good news, friends. The king is not bailing ship. He's coming back to put all things to rights, to renew everything. So the rapture is not about fear and secrecy or snatching us away to go be disembodied spirits in the clouds. It's about the joy of the homecoming of the king. And by the way, that one of those bags we need to empty is like what, what the resurrection life will be like. You're not going to be like Cupid. You're going to have a body. And put your feet down on the ground, the ground that's been groaning for Christ for so long. Oh, we have no idea. It's going to be amazing. When we hear the sound of him coming, we're going to rush out. Those who are in Christ, the Spirit is going to light a fire in us, like, oh, he's home. Let's go. Let's go meet him. We've been waiting for so long. Man, my daughters, uh, Eleanor and Catherine, you'll know, when I drive home, my very long one-minute commute home from work, <laughs> in my little uh, truck, as I come down the driveway, they're often, or come down the road toward my house, they're often in the front yard playing. And as soon as they see the truck, what do they do? They meet me, shouting, Daddy! And they run to the driveway. I usually have to stop because <laughs> I'm nervous. And I, and I catch them up into my lap sometimes, and they'll even drive the truck down the driveway and park it with me. That's the rapture. Meeting Jesus with joy. So that's the word meet. Hold it together, Watson. All right. Um, second word, I said we do two words backwards. The second word is the trumpet. Um, there are three things there you'll notice. The, the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. Uh, I chose the trumpet because I don't have three hours. I wish I did. I could do this all day. Um, what you need to know about the three is that they're military terms, right? So we who are in Christ, this is joy. This is all joy. This is the moment we've been waiting for for so long. It's not joy and pleasure for everyone when Christ returns. It's the sound of judgment for some. So we've got work to do now to win them to Christ. But for all who are in Christ, the trumpet is the clarion call of hope. Let me brief you, briefly walk you through two Old Testament passages then that are in, clearly in Paul's minds, among others, when he's talking about the trumpet. Now, 
as a side note, grab a concordance one day, look up trumpet and go to the Old Testament. You'll spend a week just going, whoa, this is awesome. There's so much using that imagery that talks about this aspect of meeting with God. But I'll give you two, two passages, both from Leviticus. The first is Leviticus chapter 23. Um, I'm not going to read it out for time, but you can, it's verses 23 to 25. It's the feast of trumpets. Did you know trumpets get their own feast? Feast of trumpets. Feast of trumpets happens three days before the day of atonement. Uh, and, and it begins with blowing a trumpet loudly. What do they do? Well, the trumpet in the feast of trumpets is meant to summon all God's people to what he calls a holy convocation. The trumpet says, from God, come meet with me. All who are mine, come. It's time. And what do they do for three days in the Feast of Trumpets? Two things and only two things. Ready? They, they rest and they feast. That's it. I want a Feast of Trumpets. <laughs> That's the, the trumpet. You hear the trumpet in Israel. 3,000 years ago. It's a call to meet with God, rest, and feast. Second one, Leviticus 25, verses 9 through 12. The trumpet blast announces the year of Jubilee. And we were talking about this this morning with the musicians. Um, I don't know that they ever actually observed the year of Jubilee. What a shame. You will. If you're in Christ, there is a year of Jubilee. Here's what happens. The year of Jubilee begins on the Day of Atonement on the 49th year. So you do the Day of Atonement once a year where the sins of all the people are covered in the Old Testament, which of course points to Christ and the cross, the final, ultimate, true Day of Atonement where the Lamb of God bears the sins of his people. And on the 49th year of the Day of Atonement, they blow another trumpet. And they say, this is the beginning of the year of Jubilee. The 50th year is Jubilee. Jubilee basically is about two things. It's freedom for the people and freedom for the land. Land that has been sold off and portioned off to people who don't believe in God or to whomever else because of debt and hard times is given back to God's people. They come into their inheritance again. And the people who have themselves been sold into slavery are freed, all of them. It's freeing the people and it's freeing the land. That's what the trumpet blast means for us. It's what it meant for Paul. When he's saying, let me give you a map of Jesus coming back, and he says it starts with a trumpet, and then you're going to go meet with him. That's what he's thinking about. The trumpet is not to instill terror in Christ's children and his brothers and sisters. And it's, it's to give you joy that it's time to go meet with him finally. It's time for rest. It's time for feasting. And it's time for final freedom. I used to have nightmares about the trumpet blast. Remember once the fire alarm went off in my house and I thought it was Jesus coming back. I was terrified, terrified of the rapture. But Paul says to my fears, I do not want you to be what? Uninformed. When we find our rest in Christ, who said, 
I am the truth. When we trust him to save us, when we say, if I'm going to be included in the joy of that future year of Jubilee, then it's only because of what Jesus done. If you can say that, then all your fears can just head out the window and you can have hope. Boldness, joy, it's the best news I can possibly imagine in verse 17. He says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Yeah. Mm. Love this book. All right. Last point. Point number three, reassuring one another. Paul begins by giving us information, right? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And he ends this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. He ends the chapter by giving us application, what to do with that information. Information is not just, you know, uh, benign. You do something with it or it hasn't really affected you. Look with me again at verse 18. Here's Paul's application point. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's a command. We are to be people who encourage each other with the truth that Jesus died, rose again, and is coming back. All of it, not just the first part, right? We Reformed folk love the first part, the substitutionary atonement, the death of Christ. Great, glorious, wonderful. Don't forget the resurrection. And by all means, do not forget the return of Christ. Our hope is all of that. So therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, All right, so I'm going to finish by explaining to you one word and then giving you three remarkably specific application points more than I usually ever dare. So bear with me. Um, the word I want to explain to you is the word encourage, because in the Greek, it's parakleite. It's, if that sounds familiar, from paraclete. You guys know the word paraclete? It's the word Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. So if we want to know what it means to paraclete one another, who should we look to for an example? Let's look to the Spirit who takes that very title on himself because it so embodies and describes what he does. So what does the Holy Spirit do? I mean, the kids gave us a phenomenal overview this morning. They were so right. You know, one of them said, he helps us be like Jesus. Yeah. He points us to Jesus in the gospel. He prays for you when you don't know what to pray. He groans with you when you don't have words. And he teaches you the truth and leads you into all truth. So how can we follow the Spirit in that and encourage or paraclete one another with these words? If the Spirit is our model, I want to let that inform some of these steps, especially the first two. Step number one, this is, this is, the, this is the like rubber meeting the road for me. I don't do this. This is a, this is a miracle. Step number one. In times of normalcy, make the gospel your constant conversation topic. Everything smooth in your life? Talk about Jesus. Talk about his death, his resurrection, and his return. We're really good at talking about Jesus on Sundays. Do you talk about him at your dinner tables? He's welcome there too. When times are normal, We have to grow into making that our constant conversation topic. And I mean, that 
God gave you a tongue and a language so that you could do that, so you could praise God and so that you can speak of his glory and glorify him in the world. That's part of how the glory of God will cover this earth like water covers the sea. It begins at our dinner tables and in our living rooms and in the car on the way to work. So in times of normalcy, make the hope of the gospel your constant conversation topic. That's step one. Step two, in times of crisis, count to 10 before giving platitudes. What's a platitude? If someone's lost a loved one, a mom, a dad, a brother, a child, a platitude is saying to them, it's okay, they're in a better place. True? Yes. Helpful? No. That's a platitude. Someone who's had their heart broken, ah, oh, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Not helpful, right? Sometimes saying a true thing in the wrong moment can hurt. Proverbs 25, 20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Kids, you've seen vinegar on soda, right? Uh, you baking soda, put vinegar in, what happens? Yeah, exactly. There's a reaction. You want a reaction from someone with a heavy heart? Come in singing a true song. Before you try to comfort someone in grief with platitudes, count to 10. You build up sort of the relational equity to sit with someone in grief by speaking of the gospel in times of normalcy. That's, how, that's why there's steps. Step one, and then step two. So what do we do instead of platitudes? When someone's really grieving, someone we know, someone we're close to, follow the Spirit's lead. Groan with them, with groanings too deep for words. Stay near to them in their grief. The Spirit doesn't leave you when you're grieving. Don't leave them. Pray for them when they don't know what to pray. And intercede on their behalf, even when you're not with them. So let's count to ten. All right, step number three, lastly. Stay away from anything that smells like a conspiracy theory. Powerful hope is built on certain truth. Information, real truth, not guesswork, speculation, and sensationalism. Do you think you know when Jesus is coming back? You don't. I don't. The Bible says Jesus don't. Okay? That's secret knowledge for God the Father. We will not expect it. We can't guess him and, you know, get it right. By the way, no one on YouTube knows either, just for the record. <laughs> Stirring up sensationalism and fear is not what the Holy Spirit does. That is not what he does. He is the comforter. He's the hope bringer. He's the light shedder, the truth pointer, the joy giver. Be like that. He'll help you. That's why he lives in you. Let's make it our commitment to do what he does. All right, as we move to the Lord's Supper, let's encourage one another with these words by confessing out loud together this mystery of faith. Can we do that? Christ has died. 
Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And so we will always be with the Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.